0: Welcome to another inspirational message from Northwest Church. We pray this message encourages and inspires you. If you would like any more information on what your next step may be, please visit our website at northwestchurch.com.au. iPad as well. That would be fantastic. So good to be with you tonight. I had an awesome time with you this morning. If you weren't here, just a real privilege to be able to join uh, with you over this weekend. My wife Sue is down the front. We celebrate our 30th wedding anniversary at the end of the year. That's right, we got married when we were 13 years old, so you know, we grew up in a little country town in South Australia, that was normal, no, no, I won't go there. So no, no, we, we love, love, love being here and just want to honour um, just Darren and Bron who are just fantastic pastors and I met Darren um, a bit over 10 years ago, we both went on a, a compassion trip to Haiti. Uh, and just looking at some of the work there, we we're actually there about six months or so after um, the earthquake that devastated that island had struck, and saw some amazing work, some incredible believers, and just how God had sustained them through that time. And uh, you know, we've we've connected over the years at Hillsong Conference and various other church planting events and stuff like that. So it's just a real honor to be here. And can I tell you? I mean, Sue and I were reflecting on it this afternoon. Do not underestimate what a life-giving church you're in, what a fantastic community you're in. You know, Sue and I came away this morning and said, you know, we, we, we grew up in the country and uh, so, uh, you know, it was just a real honour for us to be here this morning. And we said, we, we reflected on our, the town that we grew up in and said, wouldn't it be awesome if there was a town like Northwest in our, in our town, Narracourt? in South Australia where Sue's family still are and and just do not underestimate just what a fantastic place, uh, the community that you're a part of here. So tonight what I want to do is I want to reflect on perhaps, I'm not going to say perhaps, I'm going to say the most important question you can ask. You, you, can, you can answer, sorry, that, that you will be asked. Um, in fact, you are asked this question. The, the, the question reverberates down through 2,000 years of history. It was first asked by Jesus of one of his followers. It was when there was a lot of conjecture around who Jesus really was. Was he the Messiah? Was he the long-awaited uh, Redeemer of Israel? We've sung about that tonight. We've spoken about that tonight. Was he the long-awaited Messiah? And, and Jesus turns to Peter And he says, Peter, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And and Peter responds, You are the Messiah, you're the Lord. And and, and Jesus says, You're right. But it's a question that still echoes down through history, and and, and our culture still wrestles with it. How do you know that in our culture, whilst in many ways the church is viewed with some suspicion, everyone loves Jesus? Everyone loves Jesus, I mean they admire him, they, they honor him, they respect him, they think he 's a fantastic teacher but here 's the thing Jesus wasn 't just a great teacher you know he doesn 't leave us that option as an answer c s. Lewis, about seventy years ago during the second World War, he wrote a book well it 's actually a series of talks that became a book called mere christianity it 's a fantastic book and and, and he says there, jesus in terms of the claims he made for himself, he was either a liar, he was lying that he was the Son of God, because that's the claim he made for himself, that he was God in human flesh. He's either a liar, he was a lunatic, there have been plenty of people who've said they're the Messiah, but they've just got a significant mental health issue. (laughs) He was either a liar, a lunatic, or he was actually who he says he was, he was the Lord. And this is a question that's that, that, that part of our culture, our 21st century culture. Many people would want to marginalise Jesus. He was a great teacher, he was a great ethical teacher, but Jesus himself claimed that he was much more than that. And this is a, it's a question that we've been wrestling with, not just in our time and place, but this is a, a question that was being wrestled with in the early years of the church. We're going to look at a passage in just a moment from... Colossians chapter 1, reading from verse 15. So you have your Bible, get ready to go there in just a moment. But let me give you some context of that. The church in Colossae is in a place, just give you a little bit of history. I love Who loves history here? I love history. So I'm just going to give you a little bit of context of this passage. And so the church in Colossae was this this little community of believers that was what is today modern-day Turkey. It's inland from a town called Ephesus. And around the late 40s of the first century, Paul had gone to Ephesus and he'd been engaged in mission, church planting there. He got there, there was just a handful of believers. But after a couple of years of ministry, the, the, the gospel had just exploded out throughout the city. And so there were many thousands of believers now in Ephesus. But Ephesus was this crossroads town that many people would flock to. They'd come in to do business there, to trade there. And so not only had people in Ephesus come to faith, but, but people from surrounding towns and even nations had come to faith and gone back and carried the gospel back there and that's what happened at Colossae. Some, some, a man called Epaphras had gone to, to, uh, to Ephesus, had heard the gospel, had responded to it, had gone back to Colossae about 100 miles inland, had preached the gospel himself, a church, church has been started, a church that Paul, the apostle, has never visited and the, and the gospel flourishes there. That's how the gospel works. Disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And and so Paul, 10 years later, he's in prison. So he's he's been in Ephesus before the church in Colossae has been planted. But now Paul, about the year 62 AD, he's, he's in prison in Rome. He's in chains. And Epaphras, this man that had started the church in Colossae, comes to him and tells him that there are some people in Colossae who are leading the church astray. They're saying that Jesus isn't everything. In fact, I mean, Jesus is a great start, these people are saying. He's like the first rung of the ladder, but there are other rungs to climb. You you need to have certain forms of astrology and certain rituals and certain, certain beliefs if you want to climb higher on the rungs to reach the God. Jesus is a great first rung, but you need to climb higher rungs. And so, Paul starts to write, as Paul can only write well he dictates actually, to someone who writes for him, but he starts to write and he said, no, 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 Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You don't need to add to the gospel, there are no more rungs, you don't need to climb higher. When you have Jesus, you have everything. You have absolutely everything. And then he writes these beautiful words and we're going to walk through some of those tonight. and We're going to look at Colossians chapter 1, reading from verse 15. We're going to go through verse by verse. It's old school tonight, folks. We're going verse by verse through a passage in Scripture. So Colossians chapter 1, reading from verse 15. This is the first verse. The Son is the image of the invisible God. Remember, he's writing to these people who are doubting about who Jesus is. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, in first century culture, most cultures, in fact, all cultures other than the Jewish culture, had the understanding there were not just one God, there was many gods. Greeks, Romans, pagans, Persians, everyone believed in a multitude of gods. But the Jewish faith believed there was only one God. This is a radical thought. It was why the early Christians and Jews were called atheists, because they didn't believe in many gods, They believed there was one God, and the Jews believed this God was invisible. You you couldn't see this God, and you certainly couldn't see this God and live. But Jesus takes it one step further. The claim of Jesus Himself was, to see Him was to see the Father. To see Him was to see God, that He is the visible image of the otherwise invisible God. Now, the word that's used here is the Greek word, icon, icon. Now, a, an icon is a, a physical representation of something uh, beyond itself. Um, who's in, we asked before? Who's into the World Cup here? Who's been watching the World Cup? One person. Darren is the only person. Okay. I mean, last night, I, you, last night, uh, Portugal and and uh, Argentina were knocked out of the World Cup. If you don't know, and and Portugal, of course, has Ronaldo as. as perhaps the greatest footballer of his age, Messi in Argentina. But Ronaldo, I want to tell you a story about Ronaldo. A few years ago, Ronaldo was honoured by his hometown who named their airport after him. And and as part of that whole process, they decided to build, to to, to create a statue of Ronaldo's likeness. This is what it looked like. It looks nothing like him. (laughs) I reckon if you paid good money for that, you'd want your money back. In fact, some people on the internet, as only people on the internet could do, if Ronaldo actually looked like the statue that's meant to represent who Ronaldo looks like, this is what Ronaldo would look like. (laughs) That's more like it, isn't it? That's a more exact representation. But here's what Paul is saying, as distinct from what we see on the screen. Jesus is the perfect Only complete portrait and representation of God. He reveals all of God's beauty, all of God's character, all of God's nature. To see Jesus is to gaze on God. To see Jesus is to gaze on God. But he goes on to say that he's the firstborn of all creation. Now, this is where it gets a little bit hectic. What's Paul saying here? Did did God the Father create Jesus before everything and everyone else? If if a Jehovah's Witness comes knocking on your door, that's what they will say, that Jesus was created by God the Father, He he, He was created by the Father. But but that's not what Paul is saying. We need to understand first century context. He's saying that Jesus was not created. He was and is the creator, as we'll see a little bit later on. But when he's saying he's the firstborn, that is, he is the supreme. He has first rank over everything else in all creation. He's the firstborn. He has first rank. He has supremacy over everything. That Jesus is not the highest point of creation, but sovereign over it. Sovereign over it that Jesus and you're going to hear me say this in different ways throughout this message is creation's means its goal and its sustainer it's means its goal and its sustainer a couple of years ago nasa released some information about some recent discoveries that the kepler telescope, which is on the screen behind me. And the Kepler telescope basically is constantly scanning 145,000 stars in our universe looking for planets, looking to identify planets. And And this announcement a couple of years ago excitedly named that there were 200, they've discovered 219 new planets. But even better than that, they discovered that of these 219 new planets, 10 were actually in what they call the Goldilocks zone. Now the Goldilocks zone is that place, that place where they're orbiting around their sun, where it is just right for life to potentially emerge. You know, just right, the Goldilocks story, where the temperature is just right A- and basically this is uh, all of this is in the context of understanding that in our universe, scientists estimate and it 's only an estimate there is something like seven hundred quintillion planets that's that's seven with twenty zeros behind it, and that we have. We live on this planet, in the middle of this universe, that's finely tuned for life. If you don't believe in a miracle, you are actually a miracle. The fact that we are sitting here, that I'm communicating with you, that you're breathing, that we have this existence that we have, we are living breathing miracles. In fact, the scientists again estimate if, even if just one of the forces that governs our universe, that, that governs our planets was actually just, just slightly tweaked, just a little bit. For example, one of the most fundamental universe- forces of all, the force of gravity. If the force of gravity was, uh, was changed by one trillionth of one percent, if it was made stronger by one trillionth of one percent, all of life would collapse in on itself. If it was one trillionth of 1% weaker, all of life would fling apart. We live as miracles in the middle of a miraculous universe. And what Paul is saying here, he's saying to the Colossians and he's saying to us, Jesus is the source, the sustainer and the goal of the universe. You don't need anything or anyone else. Fred Hoyle, who was a, uh, an astronomer at Cambridge University, an atheist, an atheist actually said the, the probability of life just emerging without any other force behind it is the same probability of a tornado blowing through a junkyard and forming a jumbo 747. That's an atheist saying then. So we are miracles in the middle of a miraculous universe. And all of it came from Jesus, through Jesus and for Jesus. Let's read on. We go to the next part of the passage. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We read this, you get to some of the language here. Him and He, it's all referring to Jesus. Jesus is the agent of creation, created out of nothing, that is ex nihilo. Everything that's seen and unseen. And, and again, scientists tell us that our galaxies are pregnant with this exotic material that we can't even see. 68% of uh, our galaxy is dark energy, 27% is dark matter. Only 5% of our universe we can actually see. It's actually visible. And Jesus breathed all of this into being by His Word. We read back in Genesis, Jesus, the Word, let there be, let there be, let there be. All of it breathed into existence, sourced by His voice. All things were created by and towards Him. Everything began with Jesus, and as Darren reminded us before, will end with Jesus. All things spring forth at His commands and all things will return to Him at His command. He is the Alpha, He is the Omega. He is the beginning, He is the end. He is the sustainer of this universe. Without Christ, our universe disintegrates. I love how another astronomer puts it It says this, Christ keeps the cosmos from becoming a chaos. Aren't you glad that Jesus is sustaining this universe? The moment that God removes His hand from this universe, it all falls apart. It's by His grace that we stand. It's by His grace that we live. It's by His grace that the hand of judgment hasn't come against this world. Jesus is the rhyme, the reason and the rationale of the universe. He is the center, the origin and the destiny of the universe. So let's go on. We read in the next part of the passage, if you're following along in your, in your Bible, and he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So that in everything, he might have supremacy. You're getting a bit of a theme here. Jesus above all things, including the church. Now, Darren and Bron have the title here of senior pastor, but can I tell you, the head of this church, and they would agree with me, is not them, it is Jesus In every Bible-believing, Jesus-proclaiming, gospel-centered church, the focus, the center, and the head of that church is Jesus Christ. He is the goal and the sustainer of every church. And any church where that's not the case is not a church of Jesus Christ. He is the head of all things. Most especially, he is the head of the church. We read on. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. There are two radical claims that are made in these couple of verses. The first is this, that the human Jesus contained all the fullness of God. To see Jesus was to see God. There's nothing that God is that was not in Jesus. Everything, everything, everything is revealed in Christ. The essence of God was fully exhausted in the Son. The Creator clothed Himself in the form of creation. That's that's claim number one, that, that the human Jesus contained all the fullness of God. To see Jesus is to see God. And the second claim is this, that the Creator embraced creation. He subjected himself to death. Here's what Paul is saying We don't need a ladder to climb up to God. We have a God who climbs down a ladder to us. We don't need a ladder climbing up. We don't need to earn our salvation. We don't need to stretch our way to God. God stretched his way to us. He came down and mixed himself amongst the dirt and the dust of this world that we might know that our Redeemer lives. Our Redeemer lives. The cosmic Christ became human flesh and was nailed to a cursed tree. Why? To reconcile all things, but most especially those created in His image, you and me, back to Himself. Back to Himself. Let's read on. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel man this guy can preach can't he <laughs> not me by the way i mean paul up here I mean, Paul's picture here is this: that the ugliness of human behavior, all that is seen and unseen, all sin, it alienates us from God. And that this, and, and for good news to be good, we need to recognise the bad news: that this is a persistent and pervasive condition. All have sinned, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us, every one of us, no matter how obvious or otherwise. It might be. And, and, and what this has awakened in us is this, this hunger, this thirst for a God that seems just beyond our reach. And so many in our culture, even if they don't articulate it this way, they wonder, "Can I climb enough rungs? Can I reach high enough? In order that I might find satisfaction, fulfillment, some would even say that I might even reach God that I might find purpose and meaning and fulfilment in this life. A couple of years ago, uh, Sue and I went to a, it was about 18 months ago, we went to a party with a friend who turned 60. And this is what happens when you go to 60th birthday parties. We went and saw a Churchill movie together. We rented out a movie theatre and we went and saw this movie. He's a bit of a church, a bit of a history buff and he loves Winston Churchill. And it was a fabulous story about Churchill during the Second World War when, of course, Churchill was at his best, leading uh, the Allied forces. And tells a story of the few days leading up to the D-Day invasion where um, Churchill and, and the Allied leaders have planned this, this moment where they'll take back Europe, mainland Europe, continental Europe, from the Nazis. And, and, and it really delves into what's going on in Churchill's mind. He's racked by doubts, and this is historically accurate. He's racked by doubts because, you see decades before, Churchill had been a leader during the First World War, in fact he had been the leader who had come up with the idea of a place called Gallipoli and he knew about the carnage that had happened there and he was racked with doubts, am I going to be setting up another Gallipoli where young men are going to die on the beaches? And so Churchill in typical fashion, courageous fashion you could say, said to his generals, I want to be there when the boys land on the beach. I want to be there, not literally on the beach, but I want to be in a ship just off the coast so I can see it all unfold. I want to be there with them, inspiring them. And and Dwight Eisenhower, who was the actual military leader of the Allied forces, said, you can't be there. It's going to be dangerous. We're going to be shelled from the shore. You you, you can't be there. We can't afford to lose you. But, But Churchill being Churchill, he would have no other way. And so Eisenhower went to King George, went to King George and said, Your Prime Minister refuses to follow my orders, can you help me? And so King George went to Churchill, you can check this out later, went to Churchill and said, Winston, if you're on that ship just off the French coast, I need to be there as well. And Winston Churchill said, King, you can't be there you can't be, we can't afford to lose you. He said, Winston, if you're there, I'm there and eventually Winston Churchill reluctantly decides that he can't be there and he stays back in England as the D-Day invasion unfolds. What's my point? Kingdoms do anything they can to protect their king, don't they? Kingdoms do anything they can to protect their king. It's the aim of the game of chess, isn't it? You protect your king at all costs. But here's the kingdom that we're talking about here. The kingdom inaugurated by Jesus is a kingdom that came at the sacrifice of his life. He didn't protect his life at all costs. He gave his life at all costs. His kingdom was established with his life, his death and his resurrection. We worship a king who sacrificed his life that we might have life. He gave Himself that we might find our life in Him. Jesus did exactly the opposite of what our world would expect, He surrendered His life as a ransom, He was an atoning sacrifice, making peace between us and God, bridging in a gap we could never bridge ourselves. And so the crown of thorns that He wore on His head, which was meant as a symbol of derision, Was a crown of honour, a crown of sacrifice, a crown of love. Here's what Paul is saying to the church in Colossians, in Colossae and what he's saying to us and if you don't remember anything else out of tonight, remember this, we don't reach for God, God reaches for us. He reaches for us, we don't need to climb any rungs, He's climbed down to us, He's climbed down to us. There's no ladder reaching higher but a God reaching lower. A God reaching lower. Lawrence Krauss, who is an atheist, uh, and often on the ABC, he's a militant atheist. He's from Canada, I think, no, from the US. And uh, recently he said on a recent TV appearance, he said this, human beings are just a bit of pollution. That's cheery thought, isn't it? if he got rid of us and all the stars and all the galaxies and all the planets and all the aliens and everybody, you can believe in aliens but not in God, then the universe will be largely the same. We're completely irrelevant. That's what Lawrence Krauss thinks. This is what the Apostle Paul would be saying to the church in Colossae and to us. We are completely, utterly, totally, radically and sacrificially Recklessly loved by God who created us and died to redeem us and to restore us. This is how it finishes. This is the gospel, Paul says to the church in Colossae. This is the gospel that you heard that's been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is it, he's saying to them. Don't hold on to anything else. You don't need anything else. You don't need astrology. You don't need rituals. You don't need tradition. You don't need any other Messiah or any other prophet. In Jesus you have everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's the only equation that you need. Don't add or subtract from this gospel. It's made possible this gospel, he's saying. By the same hands that flung stars into space, the same hands that were nailed to a cross. You cannot add to what the Gospel is, you can only respond to it by faith. Michael Horton, a wonderful theologian and writer, he says this, the Gospel is not good instructions, not a good idea and not good advice, the Gospel is an announcement of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. So who do you say that He is? Who do you say that he is? Is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Is he a wonderful teacher? Or is he Lord? Our choice, the choice we have every single day, is whether we'll respond to the Gospel or reject it. Whether we'll live in the light of it or turn our back to it. I live on the Gold Coast and um, if you fly in internationally to the Gold Coast, um, particularly from any Asian country, you will have uh, a video come onto the screen just before you land, reminding you of the dangers of the ocean around the Gold Coast. They're not particularly more dangerous than, than other uh, beaches, but because we have so many swimmers and so many international tourists, quite regularly through summer, a number of people lose their lives because they swim outside the flags. And, but more particularly, they don't know what to do when you get caught in an ocean rip you know what to do when you get caught in a rip? I mean, the, the natural thing to do is to fight the rip. It's to you know swing as, a swim as hard as you can to, to try and escape the rip. But, but, but here's what you'll get taught. Some of the basics that you'll get taught when you go to nippers or uh, you get taught basic beach safety. If you get caught in a rip, don't fight it. Go with it. Let it carry you out past the breakers. And when the rip has finished in its force... Then swim sideways and swim back to beach. What's the point that I'm making? Salvation, redemption, new life in Christ is not found in fighting the rip but surrendering to it, in surrendering to the rip. And you know the most powerful force in the universe. We've been singing about about the fierce, powerful, beautiful love of God tonight, the most powerful force in the universe. is not an ocean rip, it's not the splitting of an atom, it's in the nail-pierced hands of Jesus, the power of love drawing us to Himself, our only true home. When we strain against God's love, we die without hope and we die spiritually exhausted. But when we surrender, when we surrender into the hands that drip both stars and blood, we find our true home. We find our true home. Seth Godin tells a story of the the nation of Rwanda in Africa, who many of you would know, suffered a great genocide back in the 1990s, and, and the whole country went through a period, a process of rebuilding. It's been quite a miraculous story. But early on in that process of rebuilding the the social structure of Rwanda, um, the the United Nations launched a a vaccination program to get kids vaccinated against preventable diseases. And uh, this this vaccination program, it it was launched with great fanfare, and there were posters put up, there were uh, all sorts of material printed and distributed out to the remotest of villages. Um, But after a year or so, they discovered that the vaccination program that had been launched with great fanfare and at great cost was a complete and utter failure because they had failed to recognise that most Rwandan mothers weren't able to read. And so they went back to square one and a, a, a local Rwandan leader said, this is how women in our community communicate, they sing to each other, they sing songs they sing and so UNICEF, United Nations went back and they composed some songs and they taught Rwandan women how to sing these songs, these songs about vaccination and these songs began to spread throughout the towns, the cities and the villages and it was by these songs that the message of vaccination and it was through these songs that vaccination began to happen and success began to bloom and here's what The leaders of the United Nations learned, no song, no message, no song, no message. Why am I telling you that story? Well, Bible scholars suggest that the passage we've just walked our way through is actually the remnant of an ancient hymn. This wasn't, Paul was actually quoting a hymn that would have been sung in churches throughout the ancient Near East. It's not exactly Shout to the Lord or Oceans, is it? <laughs> but this is actually a hymn. First Corinthians, sorry, Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through to 23 is actually the remnants of an ancient hymn sung by believers like you and me, reminding them of the God that they worshipped. No song, no message. See, some truth can't be left as dry words in your mouth but has to be a song of the heart it has to be a song of the heart so the gospel is this beautiful wonderful glorious song this wonderful melody that god sings over us that finds its way to our lips that jesus is our creator and redeemer that jesus is god and human flesh that jesus crucified and risen is god's song sung over us and over the whole creation this is beautiful wonderful melody, a melody that holds the universe in place. And what Paul would say to you, what he'd say to me, what he'd say to us, this song, this melody, this is the gospel, this is the good news. And so let me ask you again, one last time, who do you say that he is? You know, it's possible to sit in church and admire Jesus, it's possible to sit in church and be positive about Jesus' influence over your life, but Jesus doesn't want our admiration. He doesn't want our adulation. He wants us, because that's what worship is. Worship—it's not just about singing songs. It's not just about raising hands. Romans chapter 12 verse 1, it says, present your bodies. Therefore, I always reckon that therefore is one of the most dangerous words in the Bible. Because what Paul is saying in the first 11 chapters of Romans, he spells out the beauty and the wonder and the glory of the gospel, all that Christ has done for us through his life, death and resurrection. And then in Romans 12, he turns to what our response is. He says, therefore, in light of all this, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. This is a spiritual act of worship. God doesn't just want the songs of our mouth, he wants the songs of our lives. He wants everything. And if we are to confess him as Lord, then we offer him everything in response to who he is. So who do you say that he is? Is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Is he a great teacher or is he your Lord? going to spend a few moments just before we sing our last song and team i don't know what song we're going to sing but let's sing one like we've sung before that just declares the goodness and greatness of god but i just want to everybody in this place just to close your eyes and bow your heads and you know i can't preach a message like this we can't look at a passage like this without me giving an opportunity for for people to respond not to what i've said but to what god has said to us through his word And you might, have, you might have been in church for a long time, or this might be your first time here tonight. You might have been, come along with a friend. You might have been here for a few weeks. And I just know in a room like this, there are some of us here who have not actually come to us, come to a point where we have acknowledged Jesus as Lord. And I want to say to you tonight that that invitation, that question is before you right now. Jesus is saying to you, who do you say that I am? And the Bible is really clear that when we confess Jesus as Lord with our mouth, when we believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, that that is that everything about His life, death and resurrection is true, then we will be saved. We will have everlasting life. And so uh, I'm going to pray a prayer out loud right now. And I'm just going to give an opportunity for you to pray that prayer with me. I'll pray it out loud, but for you to pray that prayer in your heart as I pray this. And some of you are thinking right now, I'm not sure if I can do that. Well, I really believe that faith is not something that we drum up. It's a gift that God gives us. That even the means by which we respond is something that God does within us. And so right now, if you just feel that inkling, that 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 hunger, that thirst, that's God by His spirit at work in your life. And I just encourage you to respond to that. Don't push it aside. Don't Don't dismiss it as just wishful thinking. Perhaps trust in this moment. That might be God wooing you, drawing you into his presence. And so as I pray this prayer, um, and and for those of us who have acknowledged Christ as Lord, it's always a good thing to acknowledge him again. (laughs) There's never too many times for us to do that. I, I want you to pray this prayer in your heart. So we're going to do this all together, whether we've done this before or we've never done it before. But as God leads you and prompts you, I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer. I'll pray out loud, you pray in the silence of your hearts. So Father, we thank you for what you have been teaching us through your scripture. We thank you for Jesus, that he is the creator, the sustainer and the goal of our universe. We thank you that we don't have to climb a ladder reaching for you, that you reach down to us. And so tonight, for the first time or again, we confess you as Lord, as Master, as God. We believe what the Bible tells us, that you died for us, that you were raised for us, that you'll come again for us. We place our faith and our trust, our lives in your hands. And we receive your free gift of eternal life. In Jesus' name and for his glory. Hey again, thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Whether you are new and exploring faith or a follower of Jesus, there is a next step for you.